0: Dunedin Multi-Ethnic Council on Air comes to you 6pm Tuesdays here on OR 105.4 FM and 1575 AM. Join Lux, Valerie and their special guests to hear the latest from the Dunedin Multi-Ethnic Council and celebrate unity through diversity. DMEC on Air, 6pm Tuesdays, with podcasts available anytime from oar.org.nz, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. Hello, this is Valerie bringing you DMEC On Air, our segment Wonderful Women on OR FM. My name, as I've said, hello, it's Valerie, and you're listening to us on a Tuesday evening at 6 o'clock on our program DMEC On Air, hosted by OR FM. You can find out more about DMEC on our website, Dunedin Multi-Ethnic Council Celebrating Diversity, um, or DMEC.org.nz And you can get a copy of this podcast on ORFM's website, Otago Access Radio. Today we will be continuing part three of a little reading we've been doing over the last couple of sessions, which is about immigration, ethnicity and women's organizations. Over the last few weeks, we talked about um, women's migration to new to a new land in New Zealand. Um, they're transitioning to a new culture, new life, how these women strive to express their identity, the origins of such women organizations, whether it's to, again, express their identity, to gain assistance, or to combat loneliness. We talked a little bit about religious fellowship between cultures and with women groups, um, a section on refugees and former refugees, and the reasons and the source of their women organizations, discussions around adjusting to a new society, and welfare of their community. Over the last week, where we stopped off was discussion around women's organizations and whether they included the participation of men within these societies. So, there we are. Although Greeks in New Zealand formed several ethnic associations, these were dominated by men. Um, it was suggested that this reflected rural Greek customs which discouraged women from social exchange in such public organisations. In Auckland, during the 1970s, men could socialise at Greek coffee houses, but women's presence was not encouraged. Other women found ways to socialise separately. The British Women's Society is said to have been formed in 1969 because women from Britain found public social venues in New Zealand too male-dominated, and they decided to organise their own social activities. Similarly, the American Women's Club formed in October 1976 and centred its activities around luncheons in various restaurants. Men were less likely to question women's involvement in meetings involving the church, so time was usually scheduled for church attendance, and in New Zealand, until the 1980s, women were unlikely to be in paid work on Sundays. But this did not apply to non-Christian communities. In many Asian communities in New Zealand before the 1980, re- regular religious practice was traditionally conducted privately by women within the home. Their public attendance was usually confined to religious festivals. Only from the late 1980s did Indian communities in New Zealand raise money to build permanent temples. The absence of formal women's organisations within most Asian religious institutions inhibited development of other women's groups. As noted, Muslim women in New Zealand established the National Council of Islamic Women only Only in 1990, they did not have an overt role in the Muslim communities in New Zealand. And they did not incur the religious obligations which drew men to meet publicly. The council aimed to encourage Muslim women, often isolated from one another, to socialise, pray together and advance the public role of Muslim women, so as to gain formal representation in the constitution of the Federation of Islamic Associations of New Zealand. As there were a wide range of views among Muslim men concerning women's roles, their willingness to accept change was mixed. The presence or absence of women groups not only reflected cultural gender roles, it also indicated the relationship between an ethnic group and the dominant Pākehā culture whether the cultural patterns of the group were considered acceptable, and that group's attitude to assimilation. Hank Scoton has suggested that the Dutch character of being industrious, thorough, enthusiastic, and conformist, and their determination to become indistinguishable within a generation, would not have fostered the formation of Dutch women's associations. He noted an ambivalent attitude to Dutch clubs in general and often little support for activities organised by the Dutch, whose clubs were what he considered weaker and smaller, with a lower retention of second-generation members than clubs serving other ethnic groups such as the Italians, Greeks, Poles and Pacific communities. Similar comments could be applied to immigrations from Britain and Ireland. The extent to which immigrant women were accepted within the dominant Pākehā culture was also significant in determining whether they had the confidence to join mainstream women groups. Many such groups became more accepting of ethnic differences over time, but most women from non-English speaking societies of different ethnicities and different colour were reluctant to become involved educated english speaking women from urban backgrounds possibly felt res- less reticent reticent sorry although many such women were more comfortable establishing or joining a group which reinforced their cultural identity this points to the role that educated articulate women played in group formation and whether such women continued to identify with their less educated sisters in New Zealand. Many Cambodian women refugees originated from predominantly peasant backgrounds and were preliterate. Few had the confidence to take a leadership role. By contrast, many Jewish women in New Zealand before the Second World War came from an educated urban background, Man Ying Ip has noted that Kathleen Chan, the founder founder of Chinese Presbyterian Women's Fellowship, was both well-educated and a minister's wife, like many of the leaders of Pacific women's groups. (laughs) However, among Pacific women, there was also a number of leaders with low levels of formal education, highlighting the importance of socialisation within cultures with strong female leadership models. Educated men also helped some women's groups such as the Wellington Mahila Samaj to form the Chinese Women's League too. The size of ethnic community appears to be another obvious factor, although not the major one, as the experience of the Dutch and of Jewish women showed. Location was also influential Geographical dispersion inhibited the formation of women's groups, for example, among the early Scandinavians and the Dalmatian or Croatian women who settled around Dargaville. Dargaville. Many Dutch settlers were also widely separated from one another. Before the Second World War, the few Chinese and Indian women in New Zealand mainly worked with their husbands in small rural businesses or on farms, and women's groups did not emerge until there was a sizable number of women concentrated in urban centres. Um, and the Pukikohe Mahila Samaj was an exception. In the early 1980s, refugee women were affected by a deliberate policy of dispersion throughout New Zealand to counteract the formation of ghettos. Even within cities, dispersion could be a problem. Josephine Baddeley noted, in 1977, that Greek women in Auckland were inhibited from meeting more frequently because of their scattered settlement, the lack of neighbourhood institutions such as marketplace, and the comparative impersonality of work relations after the intimacy of communal work in villages, leaving only costly social alternatives. There was also the sense of psychological isolation which many immigrant women endured, where they felt powerless and unable to make contact with women in a similar situation. The lack of transport was also a stumbling block. Newly arrived immigrants were unlikely to have their own vehicles, and those families that did, often the women did not drive or have access to a vehicle. Those speaking lethal English were often too afraid or uncertain or had not enough money to use public transport. Immigrant women from rural areas could only t- could take many years to adjust to comparatively big cities, such as Wellington and Auckland. Some outside agencies addressed this problem by providing funding for transport. Lack of available time inhibited women too. With many immigrant groups, women's paid work was vital to the family's income and they also remained responsible for most of the domestic duties. Often, immigrant women had to accept shift work, leaving them little time for other activities, or they had family responsibilities while their husbands were doing shift work. Refugees in particular had to completely re-establish their lives, so they had little spare time. Many immigrant women also worked very long, unpaid hours in family businesses and farms, when young Indian women formed a hockey team in Wellington in the 1971, the only time reluctant parents and elders allowed them to practice was early on Sunday mornings. Yet Pacific women, who had the highest rates of full-time employment by 1990s, also formed the great number, greatest number of groups. During the late 1940s, Cook Islands domestic workers could usually be guaranteed a half day off each week to attend church. It was from the Pacific Islanders Congregational Church that women's fellowships and sports teams first developed here. Among most migrant communities where there was little spare leisure time, social activities tended to converge on religious groups. External agencies, notably the Young Women's Christian Association, were another significant factor. Although their role diminished as migrant women adjusted to the social institutions within New Zealand, or Independent Ethnic Associations, were founded. During the 1980s, the YWCA's involvement in women's issues such as family violence was an important catalyst in encouraging the formation of the Pacific Islands Women's Project. Pacific Women's Health and Anti-Violence groups also received training and support from the rape crisis and other feminist groups. Shifts in public awareness of women's health and social problems were also helpful. Initial models for some Pacific women's groups were provided by Maori women initiatives such as Kohanga Reo, and groups dealing with family health, violence, or traditional arts and crafts. From 1983, the Girls' Friendly Society in Wellington moved into assisting refugee women in particular. And now we come to the bit where now that there was some level of integration and assimilation, There was a discussion around accepting cultural diversity. Another important social change within New Zealand was the shift towards accepting cultural diversity. This helped women's cultural groups to attract external financial subsidies. The mushrooming of Pacific women's organisations also reflected the strong networks between them, with organisations such as Pacifica and the Pacific Islands Women's Project providing a national focus. In contrast, most other ethnic women's groups develop autonomously. However, some maintain links with similar international religious and secular organizations. By 1990s, many ethnic women groups were finding it difficult to attract younger women. However, new groups were developing, especially in Pacific communities. These were addressing issues of language maintenance, preschool education women's health, violence, and sexual abuse, as well as providing mutual support. Many of the leaders of these new groups were the daughters of women who had gained confidence within their own and the wider community through taking part in the more traditional ethnic women's groups. That was... And that. 1994 to 2018... Because Pacific women's organizations during the years nineteen ninety four to twenty eighteen are comprehensively covered by Moyata Kel, the focus is on what are broadly termed ethnic women's organizations, that is formed by and for women with heritage other than Maori, Pacific or Pākehā. In the years between nineteen ninety four and twenty eighteen, women's organizations flourished, reflecting in large part the dramatic demographic, socioeconomic and political transitions among this group of women in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The skill of ethnic women's organization also reflected transitions within the political political landscape both global and local that galvanized mobilization among marginalized communities including ethnic women. The rise in non-European migration Impelled by the immigration reforms of 1986, the 25 years after 1993 saw a dramatic rise and diversification of migrant populations from non european countries. According to the 2013 census, the proportion of ethnicities other than Māori and Pākehā had almost doubled since the turn of the century, to around 20% of the population. This included those born in New Zealand as well as born overseas, with the latter registering the largest population increases. In 2013, around a quarter of New Zealand's entire population was overseas-born. The growth was seen across the main groups considered to be of other ethnicity. Between 2006 and 2013, the Asian population increased by 33%, the Pacific population by 11%, and the Middle Eastern, Latin American, and African population by 35%. The last category was constituted for the first time in 2006 Census to acknowledge the growth and diversification of the ethnic population. There was also a diversification of pathways of entry for new migrants, which had gendered impacts. Through the 1990s, there was a preference for skilled migrants who desired to settle and contribute to New Zealand's society as permanent residents and in due course as citizens. Ethnic migrant women entered the countries as either principal applicants, filling skill shortages, or secondary applicants, accompanying their spouses. Overall data on Asian migrants from this period shows that a majority of those residing in New Zealand were women. Astronaut families received attention in the late 1990s. These were migrant families, often off from Asian sources such as Hong Kong and Taiwan, split across more than one continent. Some family members, often women and children, were domiciled in New Zealand while their spouses were employed overseas. From 2009 onwards, immigration policies favoured temporary migration in a range of of short-term categories including essential skills workers, seasonal workers, international students and investors with fewer people transitioning into permanent residencies and citizenships. Some of these patterns of diversified migration were especially feminized, with women concentrated in occupations such as nursing and caregiving. Overall, a picture of heterogeneity among ethnic women in New Zealand emerged in the new century. On the other hand, as has been substantially documented elsewhere, there were new migrant women settling in the country who struggled with language, isolation from family, alienation, financial strain and often too insecurity of legal status. Similar experiences among women from refugee backgrounds were compounded by the traumas encountered both in their countries of origin and during their journey to New Zealand. On the other hand, both first-generation migrant ethnic women and those born in New Zealand could also be well-established socially and economically, leaders in their own right in an array of fields. Ethnic migrant and refugee women in New Zealand made their mark nationally and internationally, as elected local and national representatives, writers and scholars, businesswomen, public intellectuals, artists, filmmakers, community activists, and sportswomen. Unsurprisingly, the organizations with which emerged after 1993 reflected this diversity among ethnic women. And with a focus on diversity, the beginnings of a second influence on ethnic women's organizations can be traced back to the 1999 to 2008 labor-led government, which encouraged participatory democracy and the engagement of the community and voluntary third sector through creating supportive policy environments. These included declaration of the statement of government intentions for an improved community-government relationship in 2001, which signaled the government's intent to revitalize civil society the establishment of the Office of Community and Voluntary Sector in 2003 and the Charities Commission in 2007. Successive governments were also receptive to the inclusion of diversity as a strategic priority, as evidenced in the expansion of agencies such as the Office of the Race Relations Conciliator, the Ministry of Social Development and the Office of Ethnic Affairs Communities. Many community groups, including ethnic women, capitalised on this enabling period by mobilising organisations that were by ethnic and for ethnic people. The formation of a national-led government in 2008 ushered in a period of economic conservatism that tempered the earlier decade of dramatic regeneration within the community sector. Budget cuts at first had an impact on existing programmes, But by national third term in government, the survival of organizations themselves was in question due to greater pressure to streamline and reduce service delivery. Ethnic women's organizations, especially those offering specialist services, were in particular danger of being amalgamated as units within larger non ethnic NGOs. For example, Shakti's Wellington branch lost its funding in 2017 and resorted to an array of fundraising measures to keep open its refuge for ethnic women. Against this backdrop, ethnic women's organisations tended to be clustered around a range of functions such as provision of social and settlement services, cultural identity preservation through language, arts and dance, networking and specialist support services, especially in relation to family and interpersonal violence. Some organisations were pan-ethnic, for example, organisations such as Shakti Community Council in Auckland, and Sharma and Hamilton catered to the needs of ethnic women across nationalities and religious groupings. Others were specific to ethno-religious or linguistic groups. While the majority of ethnic women's organisations worked in their local communities, others such as Shakti had branches in Wellington, Tauranga, and Christchurch, and also worked transnationally. So our time is up today, next week, or rather next session. We'll be talking a bit more about maintaining culture and community, responding to racism and violence, pan-ethnic groups with Muslim women's organising ethnic leaders and new groups. At the moment, you're listening to me. I'm Valerie, the Women's Coordinator and DMAC, that's the Native Multi-Ethnic Council, bringing you our sector, wonderful women, um, on DMEC on air hosted by Otago Access Radio that's Otago Access Radio or OAR you can find out more about them through their website or.org.nz. you can find out more about Dunedin Multi Ethnic Council through our website dmec.org.nz or through our Facebook page Dunedin Multi Ethnic Council Celebrating Diversity it's good talking to you this week and I'll catch you again in a month's time. Thank you. Dunedin Multiethnic Council on Air comes to you 6pm Tuesdays here on OR 105.4 FM and 1575 AM. Join Lux, Valerie and their special guests to hear the latest from the Dunedin Multiethnic Council and celebrate unity through diversity. DMEC on Air, 6pm Tuesdays, with podcasts available anytime from oar.org.nz, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts.